Welcome to this episode of Print Run. Today is January 9th, 2017, and my name is Eric Hain. Uh, with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Eric. And people. <laughs> and people. Um, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the making of the canon. We're going to be talking about audiobooks. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we have some housekeeping, huh? Absolutely. So do you one... like that I call it housekeeping? Should we not call I it like housekeeping? I like that you call it housekeeping because it's the only kind of housekeeping I'm doing. I was going to say, is it demeaning for me to like make you do the housekeeping? I feel like that's not so great. No, it makes me feel all like right. I'm actually like being a productive <laughs> member of society. That's good. It's the only time I feel like that all week. So. Be- especially because uh, this week I will have to tell our wonderful mm print runners that uh one thing that i did not resolve to do well in 2017 was read a calendar correctly so our special content episodes are not what i had said last week uh i was wrong so actually our query show is next thursday january 19th for our patreon subscribers and our first pages show goes live on january 26th that is also a thursday not a sunday Oops and sorry. Mm. So if you'd like us to review your query or your first pages, make sure to send it to printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Do it. Awesome. All right. Anything else? Are we just good to get going I think we're good to get going. Okay. So I'm going to start. I'm going to go on the offensive here because we have an argument. Last week. Yeah. Last week there was mention of an argument and it's a very light argument. Um, that I hope doesn't take too long because it's a very straightforward one where I'm right. Um, Audiobooks, you like them. I do. Why do you like them? Well, Eric. Audiobooks in quotes. I'm going to put the book. Audiobooks in quotes? quotes? Yeah. Were you read to as a child? Of course I was read to as a child. Then then what is that? My mother is a friend of the podcast. If you were read to as a child, would you consider that those books that you consumed, like, would you say that you've read a Dr. Seuss book? I wouldn't consider it reading. Why? What would you consider it? I would consider it having been read too. I feel like those are different things. Really? Yeah. You, how? I'm not saying it's not a valuable thing. I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, obviously, I've become the brilliant young man I am today because my mother read me Goodnight Moon. But, you know, <laughs> um, that I, did, <laughs> I didn't read Goodnight Moon until, you know, I opened the pages myself and read I it. I wasn't really read to as a child because when I Can't was two tell. and a half – Shut up. <laughs> when I was two and a half, uh, my parents – accidentally well they on purpose had another kid but they accidentally ended up with two mm-hmm. so they had twins uh-huh. so then i there i was two and a half and in prime reading two time right and there was nothing yeah so my parents at some like old tiny sale had found these old cassette tapes of let's pretend which was a big radio show in like uh-huh. the 40s and the 50s and it was for children yeah and it was a full cast recording of all of these fairy tales. And so I would lay in my room and I would listen to people like enact these stories. Mm-hmm. And I know that when this Bob, sounds great, by the way, it was lovely. And when um, I know a few weeks ago when Bob Dylan was uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, we kind of called bullshit because the um the the committee said that his lyricism and and the fact that he's delivering it in song form that you listen to harkens back to the original like sources of literature. Oh my god! Where cute. everything yeah. where everything was, and I thought that that was People bullshit. Have too then much damn time on their hands. Well, it's their job. Yeah. <laughs> it's their job to yeah. to give out the Nobel Prize for literature. Yeah. 
And I I thought that was bullshit then. But uh-huh. upon thinking about it, I think I'm just a big old hypocrite because yeah. I... But now that it disagrees with your new take, you've decided to change absolutely. your mind? Absolutely. Okay. I love um, audiobooks. I think they're great. I okay, like so, to read when I'm cooking. Okay. Well, I like to listen to things when I'm cooking too. But um, so it's just to me... Reading involves being able to, I don't know, it's very, it's a visual task to me. It's something, and I know there's all these studies about, oh, it accesses the same parts of the brain. It's like, I believe that, sure. But like reading, you know, if I read, I can never listen to an audiobook. I don't think of a book I was really interested in the pros in because what if I want to like stop and look at a sentence again and. Oh, you absolutely I don't, know, don't. Not all books are for audiobooks. Enjoy the fact that, the, you know, like what about production value of a book, right? Like I feel like so much effort goes into, you know, typesetting and design and all these other elements that make a book. And you you're the type of person who reads those like font choice notes at the beginning of the Knopf books. <laughs> Absolutely, I am. <laughs> but like I just think you're leaving something on the table. You're basically stripping a book down from all of its I don't know, all the artistic But you're design. picking the, something there's up There's no then. bookmaking in audiobooks. What about, you know? what about e-books? How do you feel about e-books? Well, at least there's a, like a typeset script there that I can look at. And but if you I can change go, the typesetting. For the record, I do not. I've never once read something on an e-reader. I've really? Never done it. I've never done it. Mostly because I'm just deeply scared of technology. <laughs> but, <laughs> like if you like put a Kindle in my hand, um, I would never know how to do it. Never, so you uh, mean yeah. that that if I sit here and pull up my my library app on my phone and oh, play God. the audiobook that I'm listening don't you to, do it. you'd freak don't, out and go, oh, there are people talking to don't, me. Don't you dare do it. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like for me, so much of the enjoyment of a book is holding it and like turning the, you know, in the paper and the stuff. And I don't know, like as an editor, you spend so much time on that stuff. Like I remember, you know, standing in conference room tables and like, you know, picking the, you know, thread, the bindings and the, you know, the cloth and stuff and like getting all the colors right. And like, you know, getting yelled at because you picked the wrong color and then getting it right. I don't know. It's what like, color is the wrong color? Oh, trust me. Is um, it yellow? <laughs> I bet it's yellow. Usually the, the wrong color is yellow. Um, You're usually pretty safe with black. Um, That's boring. It's, well, you know, you've got to play it off the jacket. You've got to play it off the cover design. Question um, for you. But anyway, the point here, hold on. The point here is that an audiobook kind of takes all that away. I just feel like you're missing, you know, I don't know. When I read, it's not that I like like to make up the voices, like I'm doing some sort of make-believe thing, but like the idea. I, I picture <laughs> yeah, you yeah, in yeah. your house I, alone just like, you know, doing, doing little, voices. I do little hand puppets too. <laughs> um, but, but the idea that someone else is supplying the actual audible voice for me Um it's not that I don't like it. It just feels different than reading. It's like when you listen to someone give a reading, you know, that doesn't feel like reading to me either. It feels like listening. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, like, it does to me, it doesn't feel like the way to experience a written book. I don't know. Well, you know, you're right that it feels like listening because that's exactly what it is. Well, and you right, experience but- it differently. Like, I've tried to listen to some audiobooks that just weren't working they weren't good or the person reading them wasn't great but the times that it does work Mm -hmm. it really adds something to it the way that a really wonderful font or a really wonderful cover treatment adds to a book and it's a different experience but i think at the end of the day it 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 adds it adds emotion it adds tension it it adds 
It adds, you know, so hearing somebody play with the pacing, it's the same thing that you get out of a reading. Okay, but it's not it's not the author reading it, right? Sometimes it is. It's usually like some paid voice actor. Sometimes. Yeah. See, I don't like the I would rather have it be the author than because then it's still like it feels like they are in a sense writing the audio recording too, but like if it's just some – then it's, it becomes so impersonal. It's just – I don't know. Sometimes they do really cool things. So, for instance, the As You Wish memoir, the Carrie Elwes Princess mm-hmm. Bride memoir, mm-hmm. he read it because, like, yeah. he's an actor in Carrie Elwes and yeah. stuff. Um, but then he had little segments of basically block quotes from other actors mm. from the movie, and they actually had the actors – do their little sections. Yeah. And that's not something you could get out of the print version of the book. Like yeah. that adds something really valuable. Sure. That's one of those specific instances where you've got a very you've got a book that is perfectly tailored to having a bunch of distinct voices weigh in that are directly related to the content of the book, you know? Like I don't know. That's not true of most novels and it's not true of um I don't know, most I, anything like story based, I and I know that those are the books that people usually like to hear on audiobook because you can just kind of consume the story. But like, I don't know. It to me, it, you're losing a layer of the prose by having just some stranger read. I don't know. It's it feels very different to me. Yeah, it it is it is different, and I do have favorite audiobook narrators where I've read a book that they narrate that I've read in person and have enjoyed their rendition more. Yeah. There's also, you know, those audiobook narrators where I will listen to anything that they read because they make it better. Yeah. The books, I can't listen to everything. I can listen right. to very select literary fiction. Uh-huh. Um, like, for instance, Lauren Graff's Fates and Furies was really, really good on audio really? because because the way that it's structured, if if you listeners haven't haven't read it, it's very lovely. But the way that it's structured is that the main character is a playwright. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the prose is very much like stage direction and is very much like dialogue. And it worked. It worked because it's kind of modeled after theater. Something like that worked. No, Yeah, and I can see how that works. But like with literary fiction specifically, I feel like I want to – it just comes down to like syntax yep. and like grammar and stuff. In many like cases, prose, I want to look at that stuff. Yeah. I want to like reread it. I want to feel it. You know. In and many cases, I can't listen to it. Yeah. Hashtag not all books. Oh my god. Hashtag not all audio books. Hashtagging. Hashtagging anything. So I don't know. I guess we're at an impasse. To me, it's not. It's just not. I don't know. When people are like, oh, I read that book, and then they're like, oh, I listened to it. It's like. You didn't. You didn't read that book. You listened to that book. You know, I'm like one of those people that wants the giant 700 page uh, hardcover that you can like slam down on the table when you're done with it. You could like um, hurt somebody with yeah, it. Yeah, no, I want to like you know really. Um, I used to do it with my roommates is just like throw the books on the floor when I was done with it. Why would um, you abuse the books so? I wasn't abusing. I was conquering them. <laughs> I was showing. I had defeated them. I was showing dominion over the book. <laughs> Who's the boss? I'm the boss. You're the boss. Uh, <laughs> You're the boss of the books. And yeah. I'm all I'm saying is that audiobooks are a lovely and perfectly valid way to consume some types of books. Yeah. YA books, for example, very often lovely. I'm sure. Very often. Do you often, get like a teen to read the YA book? Uh, people with younger voices, yes. Can I be a YA book reader? That'd be kind of funny. Your voice is a little bit too like 
And then Adult. The paranormal dystopia was happily ever after. It. Do you be, know what's I... really fun though? So there, so a yeah. lot of times there's dual POV uh-huh. in YA books. Yeah. And there's usually like, you know, a lot of times there's like a man and a woman, yeah, that sort yeah, of yeah. thing. And so they have two different readers. And sometimes like publishers will find two readers that they think goes really well together. Yeah. So and then sometimes I'll just be listening to a book and I'll go, wait a minute, I know this voice. And then I'll hear them and go, wait a minute, I know this voice in context. And they'll have, like, been, like, lovers in multiple different books. Like, the same people. Oh, man. See, that's the thing, though. That's my point, though. Is, like, isn't – don't you lose something there when suddenly you're pulled out of it because you know that these two are just the readers of the books? Well, I don't know anything about them the same way that I know about Brad Pitt's family life when I watch him in a movie. Well, watching like it's a about movie the same reading thing. either. Well, no, but but it as far as like suspension of disbelief as a consumer of make believe, uh-huh. I think it's about the same thing. Well, it's a lot harder to suspend my disbelief when the same people are reading me the story, even though they have not the two books have nothing to do with each other. Well, it's I mean, it's just a voice. It's just a voice. It's never just a voice. It's we never say just on a voice. radio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Well, in terms, okay, fine. So you think that my point is that it's not reading, and I'm and I know that everyone else thinks it is, and everyone is always right in all arguments. So um, I probably lose, but you all know it's you all know it's not reading. Everyone listening to this, you know that it's not. You know you're not reading this episode of Print Run, and you know you're not reading those books. You're listening to them. Speaking of well, first of all, my my closing thought on that is hashtag not all audiobooks. <laughs> um, but speaking of book formats, formats that you just plain don't like. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I love talking about things I hate. <laughs> I, I, I actually do love talking about things I hate. So, bookshots. What? Bookshots. What's a bookshot? Bookshots. Bookshots. Bookshots are light, and this is a quote, lightning fast stories <laughs> that you can de- I already hate this what keep going <laughs> that you can devour in a few hours they're novels you can devour mm-hmm. in a few hours they're impossible to stop reading so well, basically you're not reading them so yes i guess it is impossible to stop reading them uh, <laughs> and so bookshots are these little like man novellas right. by oh, James so- Patterson <laughs> wait so hold on hold on hold on, hold on. we're going to i want to get to patterson these are james these are james patterson products yes okay um get back to the part about so a bookshot is basically a novella except they had to rebrand it for as, men like cuz like i assume these books are you know, they're kind of like manly in tone. Yeah, like they're, they're, they are, quote, lightning fast stories. Oh. They're novels you can devour in a Book few shots. hours. Because I can only I can only Like taking read. a shot. Yeah, yeah, I only want to read if it makes me think of consuming my favorite alcoholic beverage. Um, <laughs> so that's that's good. I mean, it's it's uh, Jimmy that's doing this. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of stuff going on. I was looking the other day, and it was like he, um, I don't know how I came on this, but I searched, I searched him. Um, I don't know why I was searching him, but because um, why wouldn't you be searching James Patterson <laughs> every day? He's hard to miss. Um, but he's got books loaded in for like November of this year already. And if you like hit like the newest button, you have pages and pages and pages and pages of books that have that won't come out until this fall. He like loads these things into the Amazon system super super early, and it's crazy. Like I don't know. It's like he actually has a book published. I feel like every single week. He's like his own little like empire. That's like way more on top of it in unto himself than I don't know entire houses. You know, yeah. like, there's more James Patterson content out there than 
like all of most houses. You know, it's it's crazy. James Patterson is producing books in the amount of time it takes <laughs> us to produce an hour yeah, of radio. I know, he, makes, he produces more books in a month than we produce podcast episodes. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, should we see what he's yeah, what we, what publishing what, 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 this you week? So you found a bookshot of his, though. I did. Yeah. So it's it's the one that he that's out this week. It's already uh-huh. out. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Should I should I should give I me the bookshot? Yeah. So how long is a bookshot again? It's a novel you can devour in a few hours. Okay. That's 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 all that's, we know about. That's it? all okay. it is. Okay, so give me the manly – since I would never possibly read something called a novella because I have too much testosterone, <laughs> um, could you please tell me what Speaking this Speaking bo- of testosterone, oh, this book is called The House Husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Tell me about, tell me about The House the Husband. The House Husband. So I'm just going to read the, yeah, give me read the copy, the, read the copy, the copy for copy. you. Harry Posen is the best dad, the best husband. Ha- just real quick. Harry Posen? Yeah, P-O-S-E-H-N. That's going to come in handy because the other main character also has a useless H in her name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, good. Continue. Harry Posen is the best dad, the best husband, ellipses. Well, maybe not. Underlined. Damn. Underlined. (laughs) Detective Tegan Beaumont. Tegan (laughs) (laughs) Tegan also has the H. We're naming – I feel like – um, James Patterson is just like hitting the name generator button at this point. Like, how many characters in his life do you think he's created? Well, with with a book a week. Yeah, I mean, you just like I've never mm, even met you're that just many like people. Spinning a roulette wheel. Mm, Tegan Beaumont. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about Tegan Beaumont. There must be some baby name website with That's a random <laughs> generator. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, like, I bet he's like clicking yeah. it like the mouse who yeah. like wants the pleasure pleasure button. Well, like, you know, he hates naming shit because like his main character is like Alex Cross. You know, real real. Like, That's a pretty good name, though. It's very simple. Yeah. It's really good. Like he probably is tired of having to name people things like Tegan Beaumont. Detective Tegan Beaumont is getting closer and closer to discovering the truth about Harry Posen. Mm-hmm. But there's a twist that she and you, dear reader, will never see coming. Does it say "and you, dear reader"? And you, or did you make dear reader. Why would I make copy? that up? I don't know. It sounds like something you'd say. It's not it's something. No, it's it's got the m dashes around it and everything. <laughs> and you, dear reader, oh, will Jesus. never see coming. Okay. So I. So that's all there is. Uh-huh. But I looked at the Amazon look inside, uh-huh. and the first scene. Is this character this this dad like sending off his kids to school and basically the crisis that that is? And then he like goes into this back room and finds a rat, Mm -hmm. and then like kills it with Mm -hmm. gas in a in a airproof chamber. That's right. Yeah, you're getting real. You know, it's you're getting real oppressed by having to do something with your children, and then you go kill rodents. Yeah. Book shots. Book shots. I need – that's how I, I connect with my manhood. So it's <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> um, that's terrifying. I definitely want like manly branded novels about like having to deal with my own children. It's, so it's you great. work from yeah. home. Is that is that what it's like to be a house Eric? <laughs> Oof. There's less – I haven't gassed any mice. Um, yet. Yet. I, I killed a bunch of mice when I was living in New York City. That was crazy. None of the traps I bought worked, so I had to like, I had to like kill them, like you know, manually. Oh, we'll you say. mean after they were caught? No, no, no. I had to. That's how. Wait, is how that did... within the parameters of the show? <laughs> <laughs> probably not. We should probably save that for okay, another time. Okay, fine. I don't know. You mean, but like, are you yeah, are so you like curious. a mouse hunter? 
in my like can you like as a person like reach down and like pluck a mouse from the floor like somebody like with a salmon from the river i'm a man aren't i Uh. (laughs) i'm just like picturing you as like a bear with its jaws open just like catching mice um it involved it involved um there was a there was a swift kick one time (laughs) okay this was This was up in Washington Heights. Did you where, use your tennis racket? No, 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 ever. no, no. Um, no, this was up in Washington Heights, and I was like trying to. We who knows what we were actually going to talk about this show? Maybe we're not even talking about that anymore. Um, but I was, I was sitting there on a Saturday morning, reading, enjoying my breakfast in the living room, reading a print book. Um, obviously. At all times. Um, and a mouse just scurried across my living room. So I naturally I stood up to give chase like the alpha <laughs> predator that I am. And, and chase it into my entryway where I had like a big cardboard box sitting there from like unpacking something. And it ran behind the box up against the wall to hide from me. And so I just like kicked the box oh, as hard as I it? could into the wall. <gasps> I didn't like. You didn't this. have it, books in your box, did you? No, no, no. This was just like a box. Um, but the mouse did not survive the encounter, um, and frankly, neither did my innocence. <laughs> I, so I have a mouse murder story. Okay, this if, is what we're doing. This is what, this, this is okay. what people listen to print run. This is so good. this the, uh, it's yeah. it's short. Can you relate it to books? Well, I'll relate it to books for you. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was living in London uh-huh. in this flat with five other girls, uh-huh. which was just. Don't do that. Right. Just don't do that. Uh, the apartment below us had uh, bed bugs. We just had one mouse that lived in the living room, and our uh-huh. apartment was very long. You make and it sound like it's a pet. Like you've well, got. Well, in a like in a house have, of six women, of course like somebody's going to see it as a rat pet. In London, aka another wonderful London pet rat story, Harry Potter. No. Isn't there a rat? Well, uh, scabbers? Well, did it turn Ron into... has scabbards, yeah, see, and scabbers is an awful... See what, see what I did there? Yeah. I made oh, it about books. That's good. And I made it about Harry Potter, which that's I feel good. like a large portion of this re- uh, listener... Not readership. Listenership. <laughs> um, this podcast really enjoys Harry Potter. I'm just trying to be relatable, but please continue. Yeah, so so long, skinny <coughs> yeah, yeah, apartment, yeah. long, yeah. skinny hallway. There was a mouse, and it would sometimes go... It would mostly live in the living room, which was on one end, but right. then it was in some of my roommates' rooms, which was on the complete other end, and they, for some reason, couldn't go to sleep with a mouse, like, seeing a mouse in their room or whatever. Uh-huh. So they camped out and tried to flush it out, and yeah. they had this yeah, big yeah, yeah. bowl, this big, like, salad bowl, and they were going to catch it, and then they were okay. going to take it outside. Oh, I see. Yeah. Actually, they weren't going to take it outside because they were afraid they were going to catch it, and then I was going to take it uh-huh. outside. Yeah. Um. Meanwhile, I was trying to go to bed because my job at the faraway publishing house was really early in the morning and I had to get up or whatever. And something you should know about me, print runners, is when I fall asleep, I'm gone. Hmm. So I'm asleep Mm -hmm. and they catch the mouse, but they miss it in the bowl. So they end up bringing the bowl down on its neck. Oh, that's pleasant. And it very slowly dies. And then they come to me. Similar to when... Ned Stark is beheaded yeah. in Game of Thrones. See what we're doing here? See how we're making this so, about books? And of course that the two people doing this were like the two vegetarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Which is just lovely. Right. Um, and so then they come to me mm-hmm. and they say, Laura, what do we do with this mouse? And I'm asleep. It's dead at this point. 
it's died a slow, slow death. Okay, so now they, they don't know what to do with the dead mouse. They don't you know throw, what to do. You throw it in the garbage well, and take it away. You'd think. But so then they come to me and they say, hey, Laura, like, what do we do with this dead mouse? Uh-huh. I'm dead asleep. If you talk to me when I'm dead asleep and I'm in my REM cycle, like, I will talk back. Oh. So I say, I don't know, just, like, throw it out the window. So I hear. The, did they, throw, they threw it out the window. They threw a mouse out the window. Because I was asleep and told them to. Ooh. Anyway. Who boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was Much fun. like people um, in Fight Club who are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. We're, we're doing really good. Anyway, um, moving on. Okay. So we, we do have a topic of some import this week. It's not about mice. Um, yet. And it kind of stems. We were, we were talking. We were kind of figuring out what we want to talk about the show. One thing that I mentioned is that when I came back from the holidays, I had packed up a giant box full of books. That from, you haven't used to kill a mouse? Um, well, there's that one of mice and men. I guess that's kind of mousy. Um, <laughs> and there's some killing in that. But I digress. Um, so I brought back this big crate of books from my parents' house where I was staying for Christmas. Um, these were like all the books that I had in like high school and college, right? And I just didn't have a place for until I had an apartment with enough bookshelves like I do now. Um, and I kind of unpacked them when I got here and kind of looked at what we had. And one thing I noticed about all the books that – and this is a very obvious conclusion, but it just made me think of it um, – is all of the books that I was assigned in – or a vast majority of them um, – was assigned in high school and college are by dead white guys, Right. Shocker. Uh, <laughs> which, of course, brings up all kinds of questions. A lot of – real quick. A lot of dead white guys I very much enjoy reading. But, oh, yes. But, um, you know, it kind of brings up questions about the canon, right? And it's kind of a popular topic right now um, is how is the canon going to get shaped? How are we going to start making this a more diverse set of widely celebrated American literature, I guess American for – um, what, you know, Western more than American maybe, but American for the purpose yeah, of this conversation. Um, how are we going to fix this? Because there's a very, you know, obvious problem, which is that it doesn't really represent the vast swath of American literature produced by writers of all sorts of races and backgrounds and um, anything else. Um, so I guess the question that we, you and I both kind of set out with um, this week was how in the world is this going to change? How do people working in modern publishing <coughs> excuse me um how do people in modern publishing plan to include more diverse voices in and get them into the canon so that when it comes time to like shape this stuff years from now the books that exist now um are being talked about as they should in a more diverse and representative way so i think i think the really clear distinction that we need to make here is uh-huh. between successful and and books that that last and so, so I, th- I think that and maybe you're talking about the other one but I am talking about books that last when I think about the canon I'm talking I'm thinking about the ones and this isn't true for always but a good benchmark is you know the ones that get taught you know the books that um, kind of endure in people's minds you know Genera- a generation after they originally published. There are lots of successful books that people forget. 
Um, and there are lots of not as successful books that people remember. Please, God, don't let Twilight make it into the <laughs> canon. Um, but I think, and obviously, the you know everyone listening to this and you and I are saying, well, the answer is to you know publish and celebrate you know more diverse writers. Well, it's and not. That's the an- that is the answer. Well, it is, but, but it's not all of it. It's that involves more work than I think is currently being exhibited. Um, I don't know. What do you think? You start. Like, so, so I think I think we need to really break down what is the difference between a book that's successful and a book that lasts. Okay. So, successful <clears throat> books can be wonderful and and great, et cetera. But but I really think that what gets somebody into the canon is, you know, besides being dead and white, um, what gets somebody <laughs> into the canon? <laughs> yeah. Is is that their work is a is perhaps one of the best, if not the best, representations of a, a current political, economic, cultural climate, um, a style of writing. It's the best representative of something. It's the yeah. It's the best representative, not <clears throat> just of what type of book it is, but yeah. that it's the best representative of. The time in which it was written, uh-huh. it represents the people. Yeah. It, it captures yeah. something about history more than just like, hey, that was a good book and that it was very successful. Mm. And, you know, I think on some level, maybe awards are a good a good step sure. in and teasing I think that out a I little think bit. we've seen, especially on this show, um, awards have been something, I think, that have kind of trended in that direction. Um, a lot of major awards won by people who are not <laughs> – not dead, obviously, but not white either, you know, um, which is great. Um, not because it's inherently good to give awards to people who aren't white, but because those books were the best books and they got recognized as such. Um, and to me, that's that's kind of a big step. So when you talk about um, the question I don't know that you necessarily answered there is how do we get from point A to point B? You know, how do we, you know, when there, it's one thing for a book to be the best representation of something um, that happened is happening in a current culture. And it's another thing for everyone to recognize it as such and Mm. to treat it as such and to review it as such. And for me, I think a big part of where that falls in the book community is, and we've kind of touched on it on the show before, and you definitely see it on like in social media when it comes to books and stuff, um, is this idea of like empathy, right? It's everyone is so empathetic and it's this idea that if I just like pay attention to, you know, people of color and I, you know, feel, you know, with them and I sympathize with their experience and I do my best to listen to them somehow, that is going to be what makes their writing last. And I, I really think it's inadequate, basically. It's like for me, I feel like most writers of color – um, would much rather trade some sort of, you know, actual help in publishing a book or, act, you know, some sort of actual business arrangement over your empathy. You know what I mean? Other than saying, hey, this book is yeah. good. I read this book. Ha ha. And tweeting about it for your little virtue points, right? I mean, to me, it's, I don't know, there's there's this fetishization of POC art, that happens that I I feel like is well-meaning and it's like you know every time uh, you know a person of color does something 
you know, everybody, you know, there's a certain circle of, you know, white liberal that will just fawn over it immediately as loudly as possible. And I think that that's well-meaning, but I also think that it really serves to flatten the writing that's actually happening. So, for example, people are really excited about Marlon James winning the 2015 Man Booker Award because he's black and gay rather than the fact that he wrote a book with 70 different points of view. Right. Well, so – and well, yeah. No, I mean that's – and then we're going to get to him in a second why um, he gave a quote that I think is actually quite instructive here. Um, but that's, that is – that actually is the point is that the, whenever a really good book by someone um, of color comes out <clears> – <throat> The discussion is always about their identity, right? It's always about, oh, this black man wrote this book. Oh, this, you know, Hispanic woman wrote this book. It's never about – or it's very rarely and it's definitely not at the forefront. It's never about the book itself. And when I think about how the canon gets formed, it's because people agreed at the time, you know, eventually agree that the book itself contains some sort of craft element, contains, contains some sort of writerly virtue – Mm. That is different than just the person who wrote it, you know, because these these arguments about like, oh, it's so great that this person, you know, wrote this book um, that fades, you know, 20 years from now, no one cares that a, you know, who the really I mean, we talk about authorial intent all the time, right? That doesn't really matter. But like we stop celebrating the identity of the author, you know, pretty quickly. And eventually when it comes to questions like the canon it gets to things like well what do we actually think of the book itself and when we when we don't celebrate the books and we don't critically engage with them as well as we need to in the moment there's no lasting conversation even when the book deserves it um like for instance so i don't know let's take the mothers which is a debut novel um it just came out um the author's name is let me make sure i get it right here um is brit bennett um this was a book that came out this fall from what i hear i have not read it um it's a it's supposed to be very very good as a you know forget who the author is it's a black woman but uh forget who it is it's just a very from all accounts a very well written very good story a very good book that hopefully will last but i worry that it won't um because of the way that it got talked about in its reviews and it's kind of this trap that i um you know that i'm talking about and Let's see. I want there's a quote. Yeah, there's a quote here. So the first review of this book, you know, came out in the New York Times right before it published. And it's a very positive review, right? It's all about her. It's about um how, you know, many books this the how many books have already been ordered before publication, all this stuff. But how she started writing this at 17 years old. Right, but even that. Like so but the review isn't about the book. And that's my point is the review is about her and it's about her writing this book and it's about this it's about the review itself is about a black person writing a book and it's like in 20 years when we're deciding what gets taught that's not the critical engagement that is going to propel this book into a lasting sort of legacy mm. like when you look at so this is like for me a very instructive quote here that she gives um, when they're they're asking her so this if this is from the initial New York Times review um, this is a quote from uh, Miss Bennett herself. I've had people be shocked that the book is not set in the South or some northern urban city, but it's like black people exist everywhere, Miss Bennett said. There's a way in which we have these familiar expectations from black narratives of where they're set and what they'll be about. And it wasn't something that I felt I had to push back against or whatever, but I wanted to represent the place that I was from and the people I knew. 
That is not a review. Well, so that's well, so that's her. So that's her talking <laughs> right. about her but approach that, to the that book. That doesn't belong and, in a New York Times book review. Well, what that says to me, what that says to me, is that there's so little critical engagement with some of these, with you know, a book written by a black person that people are shocked that there are black people in northern cities. You know what I mean? Like this quote is basically saying that she was re- that there was like this initial shock factor that she wrote a book about black people that was set in, that wasn't set in the South, and it's. To me, it's just this indicator that we never really – like we haven't really started engaging with these books as the books. And we're not really reading. What we're doing is just fetishizing the fact that – That you know, it's art a, that happened. That it's art that happened from a black person. And like and look at how cool it is that yeah, I like exactly. it. Exactly. It's like, oh, man, diversity, diversity, diversity. And what that lacks, it just flattens it out. And suddenly we're in 2017 and we're still shocked that um, there's a um, – you know, there's black people somewhere other than the South. And it's like that the only reason that's shocking is when we're not engaging with the art when it comes out. We're only engaging with the fact that it got made and it flattens it out. And then so when it's time to make the canon, we don't have no one ever said anything really that substantial about this book that very much deserves to have something substantial said about it. But there's all this well-meaning liberal empathy about for this writer that really is kind of diminishing because it's not actually engaging with the text in the way we engage with like if you read a review you know for, for everyone's least favorite white guy Jonathan Franzen when you read a when you read a review of his novels they're very much based on the text right it's about about his themes it's about his book it's about um his writing style it's about his evolution as a writer all this stuff and it's like that's the sort of conversation whether you like Franzen or not that's the sort of conversation that eventually propels a writer into the canon so because you, it's a consistent critical engagement. And what I don't see happening with some of these books is um, that same critical engagement because it's we're too busy patting ourselves on the back for celebrating diversity. You know what I mean? You mentioned something a little bit earlier that we kind of skipped over a little bit. You mentioned like business and sales yeah. tactics. No, we're, yeah. So if if – Step one, well, step one is getting these books published. Step two is engaging with them appropriately for the works that they are. Well, so that's the so let's let's do this. What what I just described, this sort of flattening out, you know, using empathy in replace in you know instead of actual critical engagement that will one day drive an actual literary legacy, that happens because of a of problems, right? And it happens because publishing is very white, right? And it happened. It happens because um, the publicity coverage of these books looks like this. It happens because, um, you know, sales representatives are pitching this book purely as here's a great novel written by a black person instead of actually saying, all right, here's what this book is really about. Here's what it hits at. Here's how it, um, you know, it's that same thing. It's just like the, you know, the race of the author, this identity-based selling point is all anyone really wants to hear about. And that even goes... You know, it even goes further back. You know, if you kind of retrace that step backwards, you know, you go from publicity to sales and then you go back to the the decision to acquire a book in the first place. And I, mean, I don't know. I've been in a lot of rooms, you know, as an editor where the publisher, you know, you bring a book in that's written by someone who isn't a white guy. And, you know, most pu- – when I say publisher, I mean the guy running the publishing house in this like instance. Like the publisher. Like the publisher. Yeah, the person you're talking to about – Acquiring a book when you when you acquire as an editor, you have to get the publisher to sign off on it, right? Um, and so often you hear that phrase, 
well, I don't know who's going to read this, you know, when it, when it comes to a, a POC book. And that comes from the fact, first of all, that this person who is the publisher of a major publishing house, you know, doesn't spend that much time around, you know, POC. There's not much, you know, engagement with that kind of with that kind of, um, you know, realm of life. Um, you know, these people run in circles that I'm sure it's not that hard to imagine what they look like. Um, and their publishing houses are filled with white people. So it's not like there's – when they say I can't see the audience, they literally can't see, you know, the audience. So when you bring a book in that's They're for someone – They're too blinded by the whiteness. And so that gets me to this question of audience, right? And that's where we get to Marlon James um, when he won the Man Booker because he said a bunch – he said something – um, that is both quite provocative, I think, and quite true um, and is sort of a – I don't know. I don't know if it's a symptom or the problem. I mean it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. But um, his point is – let's see. I want to get the exact quote. This is from an interview with him right after he won the Man Booker. Um, this is in The Guardian, which by the way, I feel like we are always quoting from The Guardian. That's because they <laughs> actually make like content? Yeah, they do. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's interesting. It's like that we have to keep turning to this British publication to find book news. But – um. All right, let's see. Here we go. Um, let's just go right to the lead here. The 2015 Man Booker Prize winner Marlon James has slammed the publishing world, saying authors of color too often pander to white women to sell books and that he could have been published more if he had written middle-style prose and private NUE. Um, let's, let's continue here. He says, um, James said publishers too often sought fiction that panders to that archetype of the white woman, that long-suffering, astringent prose set in suburbia. You know, older mother or wife sits down and thinks about her horrible life. I've read like 20,000 books right. just like that. Well, so in what what he's getting at and he – you know, he's expressed frustration before that um, basically <laughs> – and I mean this is – I guess it's still true and I guess I've kind of seen this is if you can't – if a publisher can't envision a – especially in fiction, if a publisher can't envision a college-educated white woman picking up the book, then they can't see the audience for it. And it's because we have these super limited um, you know, views of who's going to actually read a book at the highest levels of publishing houses, which is – you know. The people running these are older. They're white. They're all these, you know, things that aren't necessarily needing to engage in the diversity that I think people our age kind of are really trying to make a push for in the industry. Um, but it, you can see how something like that would affect not only the eventual canon, if we're eventually, if part of the filter is, are white women going to read this? But it's gonna, it's gonna affect the writing, and it's also gonna affect the. Um, you know, the critical engagement eventually because you get that same lens when it comes to the publicity we just read for the for the mothers, right? It's it's not about the book itself. It's about isn't it nice that this person wrote this book? For which us. is not a, yeah. For which, us. Exactly. Which is not a critique of the book, which is not a praise or even a criticism of her prose, of her ability to develop a character, of all these things that eventually become the criteria for which we create our canons. And it's the trap is empathy. I really, I really think that the trap is this kind of liberal em- identity-based empathy that happens, you know, instead of actually engaging with it, like we engage with, um, you know, all the people I pulled out of my college box: Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner. Um, you know, these people who, you know, when you think of Hemingway, um, 
you know, you think of, you know, him, you know, maybe he's a bad example because he did all this crazy stuff in his life. But what you're really thinking of is his language, right? You're thinking about his books. It's very distinctive. And you're thinking about like – and when people talk about books now, it's, it's about it, – I feel like the criticism really has kind of shallowed out. And that's going to – unless that changes, that's, there's going to be ramifications. You know what gives me hope? Yeah. Is that – so you mentioned bringing home all of your – your uh-huh. college, yeah. high school books home. Yeah. I recently went through this kind of same thing uh-huh. with my mom giving me boxes and boxes and boxes of my books. Yeah. I have four different, four really big different bookshelves in in my home. Mm. And the one where I have it, I have it rain, arranged thematically. Mm-hmm. And the one where I have all of my school books, all of my English major books, yeah. is in the room that I never use. All of all of the books that I have in places where I see every day that that I go to when I want to read a book that I that I kind of engage with in my day to day life are 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 the books that I read for fun. They're the they're the books, you know, they're written by women. They're they're fantasy, they're science mm-hmm. fiction, yeah. they're like beautiful beautiful literary fiction and yeah. you know, they're all of the books that that aren't in the canon. Yeah. And so that, you know, when we talk about building a canon. Uh-huh. Like that's that's step number 1. Why do you like those books? Why do I like those yeah. books? Yeah. Because they taught me something about myself. Whereas, you know, admittedly, you know, I spent however many years reading dead white guys and I honestly can't find a lot of similarities in my life in dead white guys. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess my point and that, and that's, and that's good. I mean, it does suggest that, um, maybe we're trending in the right direction, um, which is not like a way, like I love dead white guys. You know, I a lot of my favorite books are written by are those people, and I'm not saying let's do less of that. I'm saying um, let's get yes, other people and. included. Let's get some people included. And when we, you know, when we, when I think about like the current year and the way we talk about current books that come out, it's you know the difference the difference between getting the mothers. For, and I keep coming back to it just because it's kind of the one in my head right now. On the front table in Barnes & Noble where everyone can buy it and just having it like on a back shelf is a salesperson being able to pitch it effectively. And that salesperson is not going to pitch it effectively if the only way they've engaged with it is on an author identity basis. And it's just kind of, there's kind of this trickle effect to you know just flattening out well-deserving books that have all this richness to them with just empathy. You know, with just, isn't that nice? And aren't I nice for liking this? That's really <laughs> almost the more dangerous part. It's like everyone wants to pat themselves on the back for supporting diversity. And by doing so, they're actually really undermining the whole process because there's a real lack of critical engagement. And I'm not just talking, and I, I maybe I'm repeating myself, but I'm not just talking about reviews. I'm talking about salespeople. I'm talking about editors. I'm talking about publishers. Like, it's tough to convince if you're an editor trying to acquire a book. It's tough to convince um, your boss to let you pay money for the advance, you know, to acquire the book if you're not pitching it on a level beyond empathy. You know, you gotta, you've got to really believe in a book. And if you're not making a case that makes that person believe in it, and you aren't, if you're just talking about it in these kind of ter- these flat terms we're speaking of, 
you're not going to get the book. And if you don't get the book, then I don't know. It's like those kind of decisions happen all the time. I've seen them. And I think that it's just a critical, it's a critical engagement that's gone missing in place of lip service. And um, it seems like an easy enough thing to fix, um, I, especially with, you know, our generation. I hope that, um, I don't know, I am well, hopeful, but that's, to me, that's the problem um, when it comes to book acquisitions and the pipeline and publishing them, but. And in changing on, you know, everything going to turning into the pedagogical side of things later yeah. on. and No, and that's how now. the canon gets formed. I mean, if you yeah. want to talk, if we're figuring out which books are going to be around in 20 years, are the ones being published right now. Yeah. And so to, we got to pay attention to how we're engaging with this stuff. You know, when you get a really worthwhile author like, you know, Marlon James or um, Britt Bennett, I mean, you've got to treat them like they deserve the critical attention that they're getting and not just – isn't it nice that this person wrote a book and don't we only want to hear about their experience and writing it and where they came from? And like, it's like, I don't know, with the cult, well, I'm rambling here, but like with the Colson Whitehead book, that just that one, and it's an excellent, excellent book. And we've talked about it to death on this show. But there were so many reviews that were just like, yep, slavery was real bad. Darn. And it's like, yes. And also that wasn't, that's not, that's all that's in the book. You know what I mean? It's like there's a really there's a way to just kind of flatten it out in the name of sounding good that isn't really going to do service to the book and the richness that it possesses, you know? So, I don't have a canon to end this discussion, but I do have a gong. Well, there we go. <laughs> um, should we should we wrap things up? Yeah, I think I think that that was a I agree with everything. I think that was a very good rant, Eric. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> so pub tip this yeah. week instead of a right tip uh-huh. folks it's the new year and i'm going to explain something uh, to yeah. you here we go if you have a query or pages or even a full manuscript mm-hmm. in you know on the desk of an agent mm-hmm. there's it sucks and it takes forever, and I'm really sorry, and it's very nerve-wracking. Here's what happens. When we have these manuscripts in our in our mail or whatever, mm-hmm. we, in general, there's always exceptions, but in general, read them oldest first mm-hmm. because that way we can make sure that, you know, everybody waits and that we're getting, you know, we're, we're not missing anything, that we're responding to everybody, and, mm-hmm. and we have systems. Mm-hmm. Don't fuck with the system. And by that, I mean, good Lord, please do not check in. Oh, please man. do not check in. So when you let's just make sure that we know what we're talking about here. Um, when you say don't check in, that means don't send an email six weeks later saying, hey, have you read my book yet? Basically, Correct. Right? Yeah. I got so I as I was pulling into my apartment today, yeah. I my phone honked and I, you know, once I had appropriately parked and gotten out of my car, I checked it. Don't text and drive. Don't text and drive. I <laughs> checked it, and yeah. it was somebody who had sent me their book two months ago, yeah. their full book. Yeah. Meanwhile, the holidays happened, yeah. the New Year's happened, yeah. all of this. They're checking in saying, hey, have you read my book? Yeah. In general, like this seems like a really fine thing, but when that happens – and they're, you know, this is specifically a problem if they're responding in line to the previous thing. They're knocking themselves out of place. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that's just an email chain thing. I mean, I think the spirit of what you're saying is that following up is annoying and also that we didn't lose your book. You know, we are going to get to it. The only, it, the only exception is if somebody makes an announcement on their agent website or their blog or on social media saying, I have responded to all queries up until this point. Right. And if you had res- and if you had sent your query yeah. before then and you hadn't yeah. gotten an answer, it might have gotten yeah. lost. But honestly, they don't get lost. Just ease up on the following up, I guess is what your point yeah. is because it doesn't actually help you and it only serves to make people like Laura get on their podcast and rant about you. And it's really isn't. stressful. <laughs> it's really stressful having, you know, 100 people yeah. sending you check-in emails yeah. and it's already we're doing this on nights and weekends. Yeah. And I don't want you to knock – so there's there is a there's a writer who has in the past checked in so often and so many times that I have literally not gotten to her book for a year. Mm. Because because when I keep getting close to it, they check very, in and then they knock themselves out of the Sisyphean. post. And I'm not gonna go through all of my emails yeah. and check to make sure that like just in case somebody checked in, I you know it's their turn. Because if I have half an hour and I'm reading manuscripts, I'm just gonna read the one that shows up on the bottom. Yeah. Anyway, that's my rant. Just just <laughs> sit on your hands. It's the new year. Give everybody time to get into it. I promise you will answer. And yes, it sucks for everyone. And yes, it happens for us too. I have literally had an editor have the my book on her desk for a year before making an offer on it. Yeah. Like it's taken a year yeah. and that's for an editor. Mm-hmm. So it happens and we're sorry, but make it easier on yourself and just like knit or something. So man, just knit. Anyway, that that is your pub tip of the day. All right. Remember, query show January nineteenth, first pages show January twenty sixth. If you want access to these, you have to become a patron on patreon.com. Submit them to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>